Welcome to the Mindfulness in Medicine podcast, a podcast where we explore the role of mindfulness and related topics in medicine, created and produced by medical learners at McGill University. Hello everyone, my name is Zoe O'Neill and I'm a second year medical student at McGill University. I am super excited to be joined today by Dr. Mark Smilovich. Dr. Smilovich is a cardiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University and his involvements in medical education include physicianship, professionalism, whole person care, and mindfulness, just to name a few. Dr. Smilovich, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Great to be here. Thank you so much. So just for our listeners, can you describe for us what your role is at McGill and what you do professionally? Sure. And I think you've, you've probably covered most of it in your very kind introduction. Um, I'm principally uh, a cardiologist based at the uh, Royal Victoria Hospital uh, of the MUHC, where I spend uh, a good deal of time involved in patient care and supervising uh, residents in cardiology, internal medicine, and medical students in the clinical environment. I'm involved in medical education from the point of view of postgraduate um, training. I'm a past program director for the adult cardiology program and very much involved in our uh, residency training program, particularly as we position ourselves to move towards the competency-based um, education model starting in July. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm one of the faculty members of the whole person care program at McGill. Principally, my principal involvement is in the physicianship curriculum um, throughout the four years of medicine. Well, it sounds like you wear many, many hats. So I'm excited to get some of your insights today. And particularly, I'm excited. So we're going to be talking a lot about mindfulness and mindfulness in medicine. And I'm really interested, how did you become interested in mindfulness? Um, yeah, it is an interesting question. I think I kind of was pulled in or gravitated uh, towards it um, over the years, if I'm trying to pinpoint a time, uh, I think it's something that I've always been drawn to before I even became familiar with the term. But at McGill in particular, um, I was involved in a faculty working group on healing some 20 years ago that was led by Dr. Balfour Mount to relook at um, the curriculum in medical school with respect to the healing mandate. And from those meetings, um, uh, you know, connections were formed and uh, that group kind of remained active in different, I would say, you know, in, in different guises over time. But um, that led to my involvement in uh, a whole, whole person care group and subsequently involved in the physicianship curriculum as well. We get so many different folks on this podcast, and mm -hmm. it's always interesting to hear what their definition of mindfulness is, because I think a lot of people have an idea of what mindfulness means and is, and it's used in a lot of different contexts. So in, in, in your words, how do you describe mindfulness? For, for me, um, mindfulness, I think, is more of a, it's a way of being a way of behaving. Uh, a lot of people talk about mindfulness as, as something you do or something you practice, or I'm being mindful, or I'm doing my mindfulness now. And, and I think there is certainly some truth to that. For me, it's more, 
It's a way of being, a way of being that brings uh, a type of an awareness, a gentle awareness to our attention of our experience as it's happening in the moment. And we can consider uh, mindfulness practices that help us develop that, that awareness, um, whether it be formal mindfulness practices or guided awareness practices that are done in a, in a classroom setting, uh, either you know, with a teacher or, or with guide or with an audio uh, app to guide us at a preset time such as sitting practices or walking practices um, and many informal practices in terms of that we can tap into day to day, you know, in terms of, um, you know, my, whether it be mindful eating um, or attent attention to certain activities we do in our routine, whether it be our clinical routines uh, or, or outside of our clinical environments. And the two go together in a way that, the formal practice, I think, helps us to prepare for some of the informal awareness practices that we can tap into, into uh, during our day-to-day -day activities. So you've mentioned a lot of different ways that we can practice mindfulness. How do you practice mindfulness in, in your daily life? So for me, I kind of, the way I see it is that I do um, uh, some uh, formal sitting practices, um, not for very long, maybe for 10 minutes, not necessarily every day, although that's something I strive to do on a regular basis. And I would say in terms of the informal practice, um, that can take many forms. Uh, I certainly, um, uh, you know, enjoy walking, walking outdoors, walking in nature, um, and I think that can be both a formal or informal type of practice. Um, I've recently started a, a writing exercise, which um, I think fits into also, uh, it can be considered formal. Uh, it's a term called morning pages, which I believe was coined by Julia Cameron, who is an uh, author of, I think the book, The Artist's Way, where Every morning, first thing you do is you write uh, three pages, kind of stream of consciousness, whatever comes out. And it is very surprising and I think uh, interesting to see what comes out um, one, once you get that going. And, and sometimes it's usually around page two or the second half where things come out of nowhere. It's surprising. And, and it's an interesting exercise. Again, it's something that is suggested to as a daily practice, which I probably do a couple times a week. That's been something uh, more recent that I've experienced. Another example that comes to mind that I think helps to bridge uh, the formal to the informal um, was my participation in an improvisation course that I took last year, just, just a, I would say slightly pre-pandemic. And it was done on a whim just based on some reading I'd done about improvisation and how that might uh, help develop um, interpersonal skills, um, communication skills. And I thought that could be an interesting thing to explore with respect to some of the, um, uh, the teaching that I've been involved in. And, um, you know, uh, 
when I put that out to some friends, uh, we had a few takers and, and, um, and my wife uh, agreed to join uh, me as well in this experience, much to my surprise, but it was a pleasant surprise. It was a wonderful experience. There was so much to learn from these, you could consider them formal exercises and improvisation, which has so much to offer in terms of uh, relationship and um, improving communication. So there was clearly uh, an opportunity to kind of learn from that and then apply that in day-to-day activities, um, whether that be clinical interactions or teaching interactions or any interpersonal interaction, any relationship. So those are just, just a few examples that come to mind. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing up all of these different ways that we can practice mindfulness, because I think for so many people, mindfulness is equivalent to meditation or having a seated meditation practice. And that can feel really inaccessible or like something that doesn't really fit with one's personality or way of being. Um, So I think it's important to recognize that mindfulness can come in so many different forms. And it's not necessarily all about that kind of uh, very formal or traditional practice. And I I love that you bring up this idea of improvisation. Um, I do have a, a friend at medical school who's very passionate about improv and we've had discussions before about how improv and mindfulness are can be thought of as a bit intertwined and this is particularly true for medical students and what she has mentioned to me before in the past is that in improv you're really taught you're really training to focus and bring your attention out of you know, bring your attention really into the moment and on the other person in front of you so that you can respond to them in real time. And that is so much what we do in medicine um, when we're really focusing and bringing all of our attention into a, uh, you know, um, into a conversation with a patient, for example. So I think that's a, this is, it's a really interesting way to think about mindfulness and I think really refreshing as well. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it, for me, it was very uh, eye-opening experience. And I agree with you, you know, your comments about perceptions about what is mindfulness, what is meditation. And there, I think there is a saying, something like, you know, the most important moment uh, in meditation is when you get up off the cushion or when you get off the chair or whatever it is you're doing, because, because that's what you're trying to cultivate is, is you're doing some kind of practice or exercise that is helping you to prepare for what's going on in your day to day. So that's kind of fits with my, my concept or how I see mindfulness. Yeah, certainly when I've been on like a longer, longer retreats, there is this tendency to kind of focus on the seated part. And then when you have your walking meditations or your, you know, your, your tasks that you do during the day, you it's almost like you switch off um and i many many times on retreat i've been told that those are the moments those are the most important times to be practicing so bringing it back to to mcgill medicine how did you get involved in the mindfulness curriculum that now exists for second year students at mcgill let me see um well i think that came out of a a a group at whole person care and it was a course that was developed by my colleagues, um, uh, Stephen Lieben and uh, Tom Hutchison. And uh, there are a core group of us um, that were interested 
uh, on the onset in developing this course. Um, and uh, when it was first developed, you know, I certainly was on board and uh, we had uh, tremendous support from the faculty and the dean's office in terms of uh, putting this in the curriculum and kind of uh, placing it what we felt was a strategic time uh, in, in the uh, trajectory of, of the curriculum as well, kind of just before clerkship. And um, took a while, I'm not sure how long, it felt like a while, but we, we kind of played out each of the classes amongst our group. And kind of, in other words, we, you know, we participated as students for each session to kind of dry run it in its entirety before uh, it was launched. And it's one of the things I, I love about teaching this course is um, the group of teachers that have evolved. You know, we've, we're growing and we have um, uh, colleagues joining us um, with each year, but it is a tremendously satisfying experience to teach for many reasons. Um, you know, in terms of you can teach this course, and I've done it many times, it's never the same for many reasons. I mean, the course structure is the same, but even that uh, we modify. We, we meet um, after every session to kind of talk about what, how it went and learn from each other. And we are currently meeting before every session too, because everything's been adapted for remote learning. And uh, that's very unique in terms of a, of a teaching experience. Um, so for so many reasons, because every student group is different, um, the conversations uh, are always different. And um, I have to say, it's one of the things that I enjoy the most in my, uh, of, of all my activities. So it, it's been a pleasure to kind of work with the people who've developed this course and who continue to kind of shape it as it evolves. And that includes the students as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like this is a course that is constantly evolving. And this idea of adaptation is particularly relevant right now. So I'm, I'm curious, how have you been able to adapt the course um, for the changes that have been brought about by COVID-19? So, I mean, it began by looking at, you know, what we've done in the past, which you know, it had always been uh, in person uh, in some of this, we use the small teaching rooms at McIntyre and kind of, if you can a picture we would have um, in the rooms, uh, the seating arrangement would be in a circle and uh, all those rooms are equipped with, um, you know, monitors for the occasional uh, video clips or audio clips that we would use. And there was a lot of writing activities works uh, in, in pairs, dyads, um, some role playing. And so we had to look at everything we did and then think about, well, what is it we're trying to, to get through and what would work and what might not work or what could be done differently? And, and that's, where, uh, that's where we're at. And I have to say there, um, there have been challenges, as you can imagine, in order to kind of recreate this kind of environment um, uh, over Zoom, but it, it is a kind of 
there is a, a community, a sense of community that does develop when you meet with the same people, you know, for seven weeks in a row um, and, and trying, you know, I've, I've sensed that, you know, I'm about, we're a little less than halfway through this course right now, but you can get a sense of that. Um, the challenges are for, um, to, to create that kind of environment that encourages um, participation because this is very much an experiential uh, uh, course uh, and one that invites participation from everybody. And so I think that's been one of the greatest challenges. How do we do that? How do we structure it to allow for that? In terms of some of the exercises, you know, um, we'd have to think through how that would work and also kind of dry run it as well. Um, we've used the breakout uh, rooms, you know, for discussions uh, in dyads and pairs. And um, that's been effective. Um, we've uh, used uh, screen sharing for videos and occasional slides as we have done in person as well. So, uh, you know, my attitude has changed from one that was initially quite skeptical of how we were going to pull this off to, to one that's kind of quite pleasantly pleased and surprised about what we can do. Um, and I think we have to avoid the, the trap of trying to say, well, is it better or worse? It's different. It has to be. Um, but I think it, we can still do something uh, effective. And, and we're certainly counting on everybody's feedback who is teaching this course and everybody who is participating in, in this course to help us achieve that. Yeah, certainly. And it's a challenge that I, I can appreciate, although I haven't been running a course through Zoom. Um, even as a participant on Zoom, I can appreciate the challenge that exists. And, and, and this idea of trying to create community on Zoom and how difficult that can be, I, I found that even in my, um, in my own sessions, because I used to run guided meditations for medical students during lunch times on a Friday. And it was such a special space to just sit with, with my classmates and guided meditation. And it was, you know, just very intimate, very nice. And trying to transfer that onto Zoom has been really challenging. But I think you've brought up so many amazing strategies to try and cultivate that sense of community. Um, and as a participant, and I can say it's definitely working. So why do you think that it's important for medical students to learn about mindfulness? It's a big term and we've broken it down a little bit in the sense that we've described it with the definition that you gave. Why do you think it's important to teach that to medical students? Well, I think you know, the way we, we try to present it in this course is that it is um, important it's an important clinical skill. It, it's an important part of our own personal development that, that will translate into allowing us to do our work um, uh, in a more, I would say, effective way and a more meaningful way. So that, you know, when we discuss issues of attention uh, and awareness, uh, you know, by discussing that and exploring examples, we can look at ways as, as to see how that can make us um, uh, more attentive to our patients and to help us make better decisions in, in clinical in our clinical environments. I think, and, and it goes beyond that as well. It's, it, uh, it is also a way, to, um, you know, for us to engage in our work in a more meaningful way, in a way that it's more satisfying. And 
and it's helpful in all our relationships with our colleagues, um, with our relationships outside the working environment as well. So, you know, with all that in mind, um, multiple, I think, benefits of, of exploring this. Uh, but in terms of why it's important, I think, for medical students, we, we consider it as an important aspect of clinical training skills. Yeah, I really like this idea. It, it sounds like you're describing mindfulness almost as a clinical competency. And I think that's such an effective way to frame it. And that leads really nicely into my next question, because from everything that you're describing, mindfulness is a really important part of, of providing holistic and healing care. And how, how do we make it appealing to medical students? I guess one way is to describe it as a clinical competency, um, as you've mentioned, but is there, is there anything else that we should be doing in order to, to allow trainees to meaningfully engage with this? Uh, well, I think, again, emphasizing, I think a lot, a lot has to do with kind of making things more explicit, things that, that we kind of do implicitly, but maybe kind of talk about it in, in, in a way that it becomes more explicit through examples, you know, through our own personal examples uh, and sharing our experiences. I think we can learn a lot from each other. It's, um, yeah, I think that it, go, you know, it's sometimes perceived as, well, it's just a way, you know, this is, uh, it's, it's a self-care technique, and it certainly, this certainly involves self-care. And I would just reemphasize that this is not just about, um, uh, you know, being kind. It is about being kind. It is, not, and it, it involves our own self-care. But ultimately, we're talking about ways that will help us. Um, do our jobs better, be better at what we're there to do, and and to make our work more meaningful to us um, in a way that, you know, we're less likely to become overwhelmed or to kind of experience, um, you know, issues like burnout. So, you know, if I could convince uh, you or our listeners or students that this is important in terms of developing our our skills as professionals and as individuals and as a means to engage more uh, with our work in a meaningful way, I would be hard-pressed to see where the resistance might lie. Can we speak a little bit about the practices that you are introducing in the, in the MMP course? So what kinds of exercises are you doing with students and, and what, what are the rationale behind these exercises? You don't have to give it all the way, but maybe just a few examples would be illustrative. Sure. So the course is uh, you know, designed uh, for seven consecutive sessions with each session focusing on one particular theme, for example, attention awareness, and then communication, decision-making, uh, resilience, suffering, and ultimately each session builds on the previous uh, with a, a view towards, uh, I guess the, the finale would be kind of a contemplation and preparation kind of moving forward into, into clerkship and kind of, uh, uh, kind of bringing everything that was brought up over those seven weeks to help frame that. Uh, 
um, that transition. And the, the exercises that we do are, there are many. I mean, we do some formal uh, awareness practices and different forms of, of sitting uh, exercises, um, focusing on the breath, uh, body scan type exercises. Uh, we do some body movement or, or yoga type exercises, and that's been something uh, challenging to adapt for a remote experience as well. Um, uh, we do a lot of, we do some writing exercises and um, uh, discussions and dyads, but principally it comes through uh, group discussions, you know, um, following any kind of uh, discussion in groups of two or three, uh, we try to bring that back to the group and share from each other's uh, discussions and experiences. So through, through all of that, the goal is really to kind of uh, uh, make this one that's very participatory and um, to invite, um, you know, everyone's uh, voice and to get everybody involved in the discussions around these themes and to, to create or certainly to illustrate the, um, the correlations of, of these concepts in terms of um, what we experience in our clinical work or, or in our uh, both professional and, and personal uh, environments. So to always bring examples to kind of uh, to bring it alive. There's some role playing involved too, which again is a, can be a bit of a, of a challenge um, in this type of remote learning format, but uh, I think there's value to that as well. So deviating a little bit from the MMP course that you're running with students, how how does your personal practice inform your work with whole person care? And and what role do you think mindfulness has in whole person care? Well, I think that's it's at the core of whole person care. And may, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe whole person care influences my personal practice more than the other way around. And and I am very grateful for for being involved. Uh, uh, with whole person care. It certainly has helped shape uh, um, my development, I think both um, professionally and personally in a, in a, in a very positive way. Um, you know, whole person care uh, is, um, is very uh, focused on looking at not just the disease the person has, but the person who has the disease and whole person care is where I probably first learned about the work of Virginia Satir and the different communication stances, which are based on our interactions with others with respect to our attention to ourselves, the other person and the context. And that's, that's a concept that we certainly um, uh, introduce and build during um, the coursework and physicianship. And uh, it's something that we try to return to even after the second year course um, and develop it uh, throughout training. And it, it's something that, you know, like a lot of these things, they are certainly for me, with, you know, with every uh, reading, with every discussion, it takes on uh, a different meaning. And uh, I certainly have come to appreciate a lot of what we talk about in much more depth over time because of the opportunity to 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 work with 
with these concepts in in the classroom and and with colleagues. So I think that's it's by it goes both ways. It's uh, I think certainly I we all bring um, something of ourselves to um, to our professional work and and it works the other way as well. You know our, our work can sometimes influence in other ways as well. So that's kind of my take on whole person care. It's, it's very much, um, I mean, mindfulness is a part of whole person care. Healing is a part of whole person care. It's, um, it, it's an approach not only to, um, you know, how we relate to our patients, but how we, how we, you know, to all our relationships. That's how I would see it. So you bring up this idea about healing and I'm wondering if you can define healing for our listeners and maybe describe a little bit about how mindfulness influences your understanding of healing in medicine. Yeah, I think, you know, there's probably what I've learned most uh, about healing or come to understand about healing has been through my involvement in whole person care and working uh, with my colleagues there. And um uh, again, uh, Balfour Mount has been very uh, much influential. Um, and, and he has described healing in terms of, of a shift in, in the quality of life away from, from suffering and more towards an experience of integrity and wholeness. And, and when we talk about healing, we talk about that being a, an innate quality in everybody that it's something that we all can help facilitate in others. And, and it's not exclusive to, to healthcare professionals. I think anybody can help facilitate healing in anyone else. And, um, you know, I've certainly come to appreciate, um, you know, what our patients go through uh, during times of illness and the tremendous impact it can have, uh, an experience of illness can have, uh, with respect to one's sense of their their own self and identity, and I think that that's an important um, uh, concept, experience of illness. I think that's something that's very much uh, essential to understanding if we're going to talk about healing, because experience of illness is very different, you know, for each individual person, um, regardless of what it is that is uh, the source of that illness. Mm-hmm. I think that leads so nicely into what I was hoping we would chat about a little bit, which is how you incorporate mindfulness into interactions with your patients. And maybe if you can provide us with a couple of examples, times that you remember in the past when mindfulness was really valuable with a particular patient or in a particular situation, I think that would be really illustrative uh, for students who are listening. Sure, sure. Be happy to. And there are, I think, a few I can draw upon. And often that question comes up is, you know, how do you, how do you know when you're behaving mindfully or how do you know when you're practicing mindfully? And when I think about that question, what I usually uh, think about is that, um, you know, and it's, it may sound like a bit of a paradox, but how do you know when you're behaving mindfully? It's, it's usually when you notice that you're not or when you notice that you haven't be behaving mindfully. So I'll give you an example of uh, one interaction I had in, in clinic, outpatient clinic in cardiology. 
and I was seeing a patient that I had been following uh, for heart failure. It was um, a woman who had been in and out of hospital many times uh, because of uh, worsening heart failure. And finally, through you know multiple adjustments of medications, I think this I was seeing her after the longest stretch that she had not been in hospital and she had been free of symptoms of heart failure. She was breathing better and. I was very satisfied, you know, uh, with the clinical interaction and pleased about how well she was doing. And then towards, as we were wrapping up and she was with some family members, I think there might've been uh, some need for interpretation. If I remember she was in a wheelchair and she was complaining that she had some, you know, what was really bothering her now was um, knee discomfort and which really prevented her from doing some of the things she wanted to do. And I, my initial reaction was like, I, don't know, I was kind of like, I was upset in a way because, you know, here she was for the first time in months, breathing well, able to sleep through the night. Um, and, and here she was complaining about her knee. And, and right away, I was kind of like, you know, my inner monologue was saying things like, yeah, but you, you know, but your breathing is good. You can sleep through the night. Um, uh, why are you, you know, you know, just focusing on, on this knee? And in my head, I was kind of saying, well, this is not my problem. This is, this is not, you know, my area of expertise. And I was almost about to say something along the lines of that, which I think was when I caught myself. So that would be the, the noticing um, about what's going on. And I remember thinking to myself, well, it kind of is my problem right now, or it's my job, not my problem that this is something that is this, uh, you know, a source of distress. Um, so what can I do? And, you know, it's true, I'm not a specialist in um, musculoskeletal diseases, but certainly I knew enough to at least explore what was going on and, and to do a cursory knee exam, and then to suggest um, and uh, organize some physiotherapy, which I thought might be helpful, and to make sure that that was followed up with her family physician. So. It was that moment. It was kind of realizing that I was kind of going off on one track and then allowing myself an opportunity to kind of, well, maybe there's another way I can, I can deal with this right here and now. So that would be an example of, of noticing when I was not behaving mindfully, but um, because I was able to notice it, then I was able to kind of redirect. So it's kind of like, you know, when you realize that you're not being mindful, if you can notice that you're not being mindful and then allow yourself to choose um, your behavior, then you're being mindful. So that would be an illustration. Uh, I think that that communicates at least my, my experience and understanding of that. Yeah, I think that's such a beautiful illustration of mindfulness giving you a little bit of space to step back and kind of reflect on what was going on and then proceeding thoughtfully. So I think that's, that's really beautiful. So just to bring it back to current moment in the pandemic, how has your practice been useful during this, this very strange and arguably very stressful time that has been, I think, challenging a lot of people and it's very fraught with uncertainty how do you think your mindfulness has helped you during this period of time? Let me make it clear that uh, I share, you know, I've struggled um, uh, 
as well during this past year. And I think we all have in, in our own ways. You know, I've heard, I've heard people say uh, things like we're all in the same boat. And then uh, I've heard people kind of reframe uh, that to say, no, we're not all in the same boat. We're all in the same storm. And then, you know, we all have different resources uh, that allow us to kind of navigate that storm. And some of us are in large uh, boats. Some of us are in rowboats. Some of us are clinging to life preservers. So I think we've all experienced this in, in a multitude of, of, of many different ways, but uh, recognizing that, that it's been a difficult time uh, for everybody and, and in so many different ways. Um, what's helped me, I think, I think the ability to, to reflect on it and, and I think more important to, to share those reflections with others, with, with people close to me, with, with my family, with friends, uh, with colleagues. I think that's been crucial. So first of all, not to just, you know, early on, uh, people were saying that this is, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, and that is very accurate because I know when things first uh, started about a year ago and we, we were kind of shifting on a, you know, right on the moment and what are we doing with our, our clinics? What are we doing with our patients and what are we doing with our diagnostic testing? There was a lot of immediate adjustments, like I would say day to day, but even during the day, within a day, several times things were changing and we were, we're adapting and, and, you know, in, in any kind of crisis situation, you can kind of rise to it. You can, you can kind of put yourself into overdrive. And it became clear that that is, was not sustainable. You know, and I, I've, I've, I've learned so much from, from uh, my colleagues during this time, particularly colleagues in the intensive care unit who have done just such tremendous work and who have said things like, you know, never never waste a crisis. I mean, there was a lot to be learned from this, but there's a lot to be uh, learned about ourselves and, and taking care of ourselves as well. So getting back to your question, how has it helped me? Well, to reflect and to share those reflections uh, and dialogue, you know, uh, with other people. Yeah, that certainly resonates with me. I'm always careful to not talk about mindfulness as a silver bullet that's going to solve everyone's problems because I, I don't think that's true. But personally, during this time, it helps me see what is going on for me um, and just gives me a bit of clarity about what kinds of things are coming up um, and not because I can solve them, but just so that I know that that's what's happening for me. So I find that's always really useful. I realize that uh, we're coming to the end of our time and I'm wondering if there's anything at all that we didn't speak about that you think it's important that medical students know or understand about mindfulness and the, the mindfulness course or if, if there's anything at all that you want to add on. We've covered a lot and uh, I'm sure there's always more to talk about. One of the, the things uh, or the messages that I've found relevant would be from, uh, to quote the author, uh, Sam Shem, who wrote the, the House of God. And in the House of God is a kind of very satirical book written about his particular experience of internship in a busy um, uh, hospital in Boston. And 
uh, if if you know if you are familiar with that book, there is a series of laws of the house of God, um, and it really is about um, uh, the experience of training and and staying connected in community. You know, one of the laws in in the house of God, for example, was you know at a cardiac arrest, the first pulse you take should be your own, just to give you an idea. But later on, you know, some thirty years or more later. Um, Sam Shem has written uh, about medical education and, and this book that he wrote about really the, the difficulties and the experience of uh, training of, uh, of interns at the time it was written, which was probably late 70s and published in the 80s, was not that well received by the medical community. In fact, I think he was somewhat ostracized for kind of exposing the hardships of the experience of medical training. But subsequently, he is, he is now kind of an invited speaker um, at medical education rounds uh, all over the place. And he has written a subsequent book where he, I think he takes on the electronic medical record in terms of you know, how it has become a barrier to, um, to relationship and to healing care. And in his subsequent writings and book, he adds further laws uh, in addition to the initial laws from the house of God. And the one that I'm just going to share with you is, is law 14 and it's, uh, it's called uh, connection. So law 14 is connection comes first. This applies not only in medicine, but in any of your significant relationships. If you are connected, you can talk about anything and deal with anything. If you're not connected, you can't talk about anything or deal with anything. Isolation is deadly, connection heals. I think that's a strong message, you know, certainly now and always. It's important for us to, to stay connected. And that's, I think, probably the best advice I can give right now. Thank you so much. I think that's such a beautiful way for us to end this conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat. This has been so wonderful. And you always have so many great insights to share. And I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate that too. So thank you. Thank you. And I would just add that I'm really impressed with the Mindful Medical Learner initiative and the website. So certainly if you're listening to this, you are familiar with the website, but I would encourage you to explore all there is in terms of its content and the way it's laid out. Really my, um, my congratulations to you for, for all that you've done to, uh, to create this and to develop this. It's a wonderful resource. Congratulations. This has been another episode of Mindfulness in Medicine, a podcast created for medical learners by medical learners at McGill University. Get show notes at themindfulmedicallearner.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, comment, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or send us a message through the contact page on themindfulmedicallearner.com.